Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. I'm Eric Torenberg. I'm here with Daniel Gross, founder of Pioneer, partner at Y Combinator and former founder CEO of Q and director at Apple. Pioneer. So when I think of Pioneer and I think of the underlying sort of principles or philosophy of Pioneer, I think the following, you know, talent is universal opportunity is not. I think life is a, uh, you know, life is a video game, which we'll get into. And then I think there's an opportunity uh, to build a brand. You know, what makes Harvard or Stanford or these places or YC so special is not the curriculum as much as it is the, the network and the brand of the community that, that you build. Unpack Pioneer. Is that, is that accurate? Is there something I'm missing? Add or edit or let's, let's unpack some of those ideas. Totally. Yeah. And, and thank you very much for having me. I think, I think the inception moment for me for Pioneer, um, is, is quite old. Um, it's, it's very much a reflection of my personal story. So, uh, you know, I was born and raised in a very different environment from the one I'm in now. I was born in Jerusalem to an Orthodox Jewish family. And I came out to Silicon Valley to start a company really on a whim. I'd gotten into Y Combinator as an 18 year old and, I ended up flying out here, starting a company. My company was kind of a search engine, ended up getting acquired by Apple. I worked on various machine learning teams there for a while. Director at Apple at, you know, at the age of, uh, I think, 23, very much a responsibility I didn't predict myself ever having. Um, left Apple to become a partner at YC. And, and, and my life really uh, changed. And I didn't really even realize it at the time as I was filling out this YC application. I remember I was in some, uh, you know, military prep camp base in the middle of nowhere in Israel. I didn't realize when I was hitting submit on that Nokia phone that I was going to change my life. The, the themes amongst my story are repeated over and over in Silicon Valley. When you meet people here, you find out that there's an inordinate amount of happenstance and luck involved in their success. So there's a reason to believe that for every kind of person that makes it out here, and even people that are, you know, much more successful than myself, for every great founder, Elon, you know, founders of Dropbox or Stripe or Instacart, whatever it may be, there are hundreds, maybe even thousands more that don't really ever make it and do their great thing. And I think this is, you know, not just true for founders. I think it is true for researchers, for musicians, for artists, for any one of these people that are kind of extraordinarily productive in their domain. And fundamentally, I think the world is bottlenecked on the amount of kind of extraordinarily productive people we have. You know, the greatest researchers, musicians, artists, thinkers. You know, if this was a little uh, city in, in civilization, you'd want to have as many of those great people as you could. And the thesis of Pioneer is that we can fairly cheaply 10x the amount of these extraordinarily productive people. We could 10x the amount of Elons, of Marie Curie's, Albert Einstein's, J.K. Rowling's, and John Lennon's. By merely giving them a little bit of money, but more importantly, a lot of motivation to follow their dreams, to work on whatever their passion is. That's kind of the goal, is to be able to find these people at an unprecedented scale and to be able to motivate them at kind of an unprecedented scale. And the key point here is kind of internet level scale. There's a lot of other grant programs like this, the Pell Grant, Teal Fellowship, MacArthur Grant. And it's so ironic that these people, even though they sit you know, in the middle of Silicon Valley, and, and, and many of them are doing great work surrounded, you know, by people building self-driving cars and AI. All of this great work is done very manually and laboriously. You know, you have, if you look, certainly if you look at the Ivy League, you have thousands of applications being read by like a dozen people. And 
assuredly we could do better. Like, here we are, a species that is putting things on Mars. You got to tell me there's a better way we can screen and identify talent. So we're trying to bring that kind of Google-level scale to solving this problem. So Pioneer is built almost entirely in software. The selection process almost is, is almost entirely in software. And it's almost built as a, as a game people play, um, where every month we kind of reset the game, but every month you have the op- opportunity to compete on a global leaderboard of progress, basically. And progress is something you can make irrespective of what domain you're working on. You could be working on a small SaaS startup. You could be working on research and machine learning. You could be working on, you could be a, a young EDM artist on SoundCloud. All you have to do is make progress towards your goals. The more progress you make, the more points you get. We take the people that have the highest scoring points at the end of the month and we give them some funding. We bring them out to Silicon Valley. And in general, we try to cultivate the same atmosphere, the same kind of feeling that one would experience at an Ivy League university, but on the internet, a kind of digital Ivy League campus. So that's a, that's in a nutshell what Pioneer is trying to do. We're trying to scale the benefits of the Ivy League to the millions of lost Einsteins around the world. Perfect. And it's not just, it's not almost like a video game. It is a video game. And I, I'm playing in it as a, as a referrer. And, you know, you have a leaderboard for people who source people. And at one point I was in the top 10 and I was like, man, I got to get, I got to get to the top. Now I haven't sourced in a bit, <laughs> but I, and I've been telling, you know, I was telling my entrepreneur friends, I was telling my artist friends, I was telling my rapper friends, but talk about this concept of life as a video game. Cause I, I know that's something you, you've thought quite a lot about. In, yeah. In Pioneer I mean, and elsewhere. Well, I think, by the way, that top of the referral board, just to give you a sense. So, so this is a, a leaderboard that we have on our website, not of the players in the game, but the people who refer players to the game. And we got first person, first position is a person from the United States, second from the UK, the third from Ghana. We have someone from afterwards from India. Balaji is number seven right now. That's the only identifiable name. Patrick Collison is number 12. The rest I don't know. These are random people wow. kind of spread throughout the world. I think in general, games are an incredibly underrated concept in terms of how they're both used in software, but also in terms of how we think about them in, in general in society. Games are fundamentally the way children explore the world. They simulate things, they simulate things with other people, and they're a wonderful environment to, to participate in because they engender human competition and cooperation in a way that ultimately allows someone to potentially fail. It's just a game, you know, it's not real life. And one of the really interesting things, especially about online games, is just how motivating they are. It is unbelievable to me, you know, we view it as a pejorative that someone, you know, say, well, play The Sims or Fortnite for like five or six hours. Ultimately, if you're playing The Sims, Age of Empires or Civ, you're solving resource allocation problems. You're you're literally doing the same thing a McKinsey analyst does, uh, and you've opted into doing this for the entire night. And your parents are angry at you that you did it. <laughs> but there's something really interesting about that. Like, why why did you decide to do that? And could you possibly bring that same nuclear energy of productivity into other realms, into software in general. And th- th- that is one of our techniques in building our product and kind of building this digital Ivy League campus. One of our techniques is to constantly bring back concepts from games over and over and over. Probably the most paramount important concept from a game that we sprinkle everywhere in Pioneers, the one we just talked about, is, is the idea of a leaderboard. It feels simple, but it's incredibly powerful. If you have a point score and a leaderboard, it turns out People surprise themselves in the amount of motivation they have to climb the thing. We get dozens of emails, sometimes a day, from people whose position has moved in the leaderboard 
in one direction or the other. And it's dramatically, you know, it's dramatically influencing their, their psychology. We're kind of surprised, honestly, by it because, you know, it's something that we just kind of built in here in an office. But what, what you kind of realize over time is that people develop a strong emotional attachment to this thing because a leaderboard is merely a digital edition of a process that we are all doing all the time. So when you sit down to, to, to at say, a dinner party and you meet a bunch of new people, there basically is a leaderboard there. And you're kind of figuring out who's good, who's bad, who's interesting, who's not, who feels secure, who feels insecure. Where do I rank here? You know, who would be interesting to catch up with afterwards? And all we did is we made a version of that with pixels instead of one that runs in your head. And it turns out it's incredibly potent and it's incredibly powerful. And so that that's just merely one style of energy that we're trying to bring from games into kind of the, the realm of productivity. There's many more that we'll be doing over time. The thing that is most surprising to me is the fact that we're kind of the only ones doing this. You talk to game designers and they have a whole spiel. I mean, they could talk for hours to you about how different game mechanics work and how you ha- need to give instant feedback. You know, is another important game mechanic. There's a, there's a very important game mechanic around injecting randomness into things. This is kind of why humans play the lottery over and over is because of the random nature of it. They can't model it, so they feel like they must do it. And good game designers have spent, you know, 20 to 30 years thinking about it. But then you wonder and you ask the question, why haven't these techniques been brought to, say, Gmail? Or Slack. Why can't that be as fun and as motivating and help me accomplish my goals as much as a video game is? And I'm not really sure the answer as to why, but I very much hope that we can kind of change the defaults here. Um, software should be fun to use. It should help you get what you want done. You should not be stymied by your mood. Software should kind of enable you to jump and punch above your weight in current mood. And it should use all these psychological techniques to motivate you to, to kind of get what you want done. Is Java like that for you for running? And are there other areas of your life where you would like to have more game mechanics? Yeah, I mean, I would love to have game mechanics kind of everywhere. The trick with the game mechanic, by the way, is you got to be really careful what you measure. And so CrossFit, I find a very interesting variant of this that's actually somewhat flawed. CrossFit's an amazing... Almost religion, actually, when you think about it. It has churches throughout the world. There are local pastors. You have to, like, go to the quote-unquote Vatican to get certified as a pastor. They've kind of figured it out. And it's very cultish and tribal, right? The kind of downside of CrossFit is I've noticed any one of my friends that do it, one of two things happens. Either they, you know, they check out, or if they're a type A personality, within three months they get injured. And they get injured not because they're bad. They get injured as a emergent property of the system that they're in, which is that CrossFit optimizes like for you to do as many reps as possible. That is what they are measuring. Now, as you know, when you work out, you can always accomplish more reps by breaking form and by hurting yourself. And so people get as many reps done as possible until they injure themselves because of what they're doing. So you have to be really careful what you measure and what you promote because because the leaderboard is so powerful. I mean, people will just commit to that thing and try to move it up as much as as much as you want. And, and I'm saying this, you brought up Strava. I mean, Strava definitely, and, and there's research about this, it's not just me, increased my proclivity towards running without me really thinking about it. I think the, the, the interesting twist here is a lot of this is kind of in the back of your brain. But suddenly, yeah, I found myself running more and more and more. And I, I think there's this, there's a fantastic paper that was published a couple of months ago about how the kind of best way to motivate people to run was to put them on networks like Strava and surround them in particular by runners who were ever so slightly slower than them. Right. 
This is very interesting. Not people that are much faster, not people that are your speed, but slightly slower. And my interpretation of this is it's you've just made a easy game to win because you can be slightly better than those people all the time. And so there's positive feedback there. Now, I suspect it's a little bit more nuanced. If all you get is positive feedback all the time, then it becomes boring and monotonous. It's it's not fun to play, you know, a game on easy mode because there's no novelty there. Uh, so you actually need the right balance. And again, I, we, you know, so we think about a lot within Pioneer, we think a lot about what is the right balance in terms of, you know, if you move up and down the leaderboard, what is the right sequence that is the most motivating? Is it up, up, down, down? Is it a lot of up and then a lot of down? And so, so, you know, so we're applying a lot of thought to this, trying to make the most compelling experience possible. And it blows my mind that no one else is. You know, I don't think even Strava is. I think the only people that are doing this are are people making games for you to play on the subway, which is, you know, entertainment is important and awesome, but we could make the world significantly more interesting if we just said, let's take a step back. Let's focus on the high-level goals you want to achieve in life, and then let's build the most interesting kind of game treadmill to get you there. I feel like a version of that for me is Twitter, which is a game for me to come up with interesting ideas, <laughs> hunches and ideas. And I found that the more I, I put them out there, the more I'm encouraged, uh, the more ideas I have. And it's, well, I, I think we will find out, and it may be only a decade from now, that Twitter has fundamentally reshaped the human psyche. Because I suspect what is going on is you issue a tweet, you get a lot of positive affirmation from other humans. And by the way, the most potent leaderboards are ones where you have tribal familiarity with your peers in the leaderboard. So it's one thing to get likes from bots. It's another thing to get likes from like people you know. And of course, the most amazing thing is to get likes from people you respect, which is why I think everyone immediately when they get likes tries to look at immediately, are any of those accounts verified? Because what is that telling you? That's telling you that you got approval from people higher up in the leaderboard. But But what happens is you issue that tweet, you get some positive feedback, and then I think your brain is doing the right thing, which was like, wow. That was a pleasant experience. I think we should do that again. And then it reshapes your thinking. And and I don't know to what degree, you know, everyone kind of feels they're more frenetic these days and a little bit slightly more ADD. Uh, I believe Harvard published this paper, paper about attention deficit syndrome. It's not a disorder now. It's just like a thing you have. Yeah. And I wonder to what degree a lot of this is a byproduct of you are literally training your brain to think in the shortest version communication as possible all the time, or you're training the brain to to have the most, the ideas that will create the most kind of reactionary content. The one final variant on this, and I don't want to spend too much time on Twitter, is actually think um, one, you know, so one thing people will say is like, look, Daniel, thanks for that idea. But ultimately, Twitter is just used amongst the, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, media elites. It's actually not used broadly by the world, which is somewhat true. But the twist here is um, it's used by journalists. And journalists create information that spreads throughout the world. So if you view Trump as an, you know, again, as a, as a kind of a property that emerges from Twitter, it's not because your average kind of NRA card-carrying Americans are reading Twitter. I don't think so. The journalists are, and journalists are trying to create, you know, now journalists are in this mindset where they're trying to maximize likes, and that is really changing the types of articles they read and the conversations they have at their offsites at Fox or CNN or CNBC. And so in that sense, I think it has a second order effect where it's really changing global psychology, but it is a game ultimately. And this is why, this is why I think it's so important to be careful what you reward and what you measure because yeah. people will optimize for it. Yeah. My friend sent me this site where you could see who unfollowed you. 
course. I see people unfollow me and they're utterly dead to me. No, but now I'm checking it. I'm like, oh my God, why do I care? Of course you care. Now, why do you care is a very interesting question. Yeah. I think you care for a very important reason. So here's a, here's another slightly contrarian thing for us. We are all, I think the Silicon Valley mindset is you should not care what other people think about you. You are weak if you care what other people think about you. And, you know, Bob Keegan has actually done a lot of work on uh, the psychology of adults, has this interesting framework where he actually views people who have a, what's he calls, uh, what he calls a socialized mindset as somewhat ne- Neanderthalic. You want to evolve. You want to be beyond what people think about you. It's not clear to me that that is true because what other people think about you, especially the people you respect think about you, is a very important signal as to whether you are doing the right thing or not. And I'd imagine it has a long-standing million-year tribal history of, gosh, if the elders don't think this is good, it may not be good. It could very well be that, I don't know, everyone's upset at you because you're like walking around naked. It could be that that is a bad idea if you believe in the concept of decency. And we don't have to go down that rabbit hole, but you get my point. So... You do care who unfollows you because those people have basically decided to vote and say your ideas are bad or uninteresting to me. And you should learn from that. Now, maybe you should take the opinion that those people are just of a different tribe, you know, and, and, and there's no need for your ideas to connect. Or maybe they're wrong, but I don't know. Maybe they're right. Maybe you should learn from it. So I actually think it's probably wrong for us to not care what people think about us. Now, you can care too much. But I actually think the right framework here is a balance as opposed to complete and utter rejection of what others think about you. Because then again, you end up like Japan, which is great, but very alien to the rest of the world in a global sense. It's an exercise in compartmentalizing. Yeah. But, so thinking about games in a broader way of, of perhaps game design, so let's say we we're talking about basketball earlier. Basketball is some sense zero-sum game. Like there's winner and there's loser, and I have to beat you. Pioneer feels, and other games, more positive sum. I can win. You can win. You also, I'm curious in life, what types of games or what types of things even are, are positive sum versus zero sum? For example, you know, giving someone credit. Is that positive sum when you give someone your respect or recognition or an award or when you have, you know, a lot of friends? Like what, what types of things, you know, were you having more of it takes away the specialness for someone else? And maybe that's related to the book Infinite Games, which I know you're a fan of, but how does it land on you? So, so one important thing to note about Pioneer, there are multiple winners uh, every month. So it is not like Fortnite in the sense that there's one person left standing. There are multiple people that can win. And I think that's a very fundamental component. If players kind of sense a limited amount of oxygen in the room, then it's really hard to engender cooperation amongst players. And people tend to start playing, have kind of a very short mind uh, mindset in terms of cooperation, helping others. So you, you definitely do want to figure out how to craft something that is expansive enough so that it feels like, yeah, we could work together here. We could cooperate because we can kind of all win. And you see this like uh, uh, to, to exit the gaming world and you see this happen in markets where you have different managers. So for example, in the venture world, because there's limited amount of kind of oxygen to go around, you'll often see funds compete. And it's not actually a very collaborative environment, say between Sequoia or Andreessen. And they may respect each other at a very high level, but it's very competitive. Whereas it's quite interesting if you look at it in the hedge fund world, especially when they're trying to figure out what calls to do, because, you know, we can put in a $10 million trade, you guys can put in a $10 million trade, there's much more sharing of ideas. 
And it's a much more positive world. In fact, hedge funds have these like offsites where different fund managers go and trade ideas. That wow. would never, you would never see an offsite. It's where, a like, coin benchmark. Yeah, here's the companies <laughs> we're looking at. What do you think? So, so the key insight here is you have to have uh, uh, the sense that we can all kind of win together. Another way to cultivate that sense, and this is where Finite and Infinite Games is a quite helpful reference, is to try to make the case that this thing that we're doing Let's imagine there's, there is a limited amount of deal flow. This investment in, in the company that we're doing, I'm happy to split it with you because the game I'm maximizing in life is not making a return off this investment. It's having a relationship with you and having a relationship with you will mean 10,000 other investments down the road. It'll mean our kids can play together. It'll mean we'll have a great life. We're playing an infinite game where it's not really clear what the end is. We're just rolling it over, over and over. And that occasionally happens in the angel investor world, right? Where you have like a small allocation and you'll split it with someone because you kind of want to build a longstanding relationship that kind of folds over and over. So, so another approach here is to try to engender infinite gamesmanship amongst people where you're not really worried about like, uh, is this thing going to work out? You kind of have faith that it'll work out and you want a very long term time horizon yeah. with that person. Two other quick thoughts here on like, uh, you know, zero sum versus non-zero sum. The other thing that I think you have to do to, to engender healthy competition, um, that we kind of touched on earlier is, and we, we care about this a lot with Pioneer. It's something we actually need to do a better job at. The matchups between players need to be exciting and interesting. There needs to be novelty there. So as part of going through Pioneer, you actually rate other applicants constantly and you're rating their progress as well. So you can imagine thousands of people applying together, the kind of children of the internet working on their different projects and they're all rating each other's progress. And we don't do a good job of this today, but we will do a better job of making sure that we show you other people that are somewhat similar to you because if you get the sense that a competitor is 100 times better than you, you're not going to play the game because you're going to predict you'll lose. Similarly, if they're 100 times lower than you, there's, there's no novelty either there. So you have to have you know exciting matchups. The last thing that I find really interesting, I don't exactly know how to p- apply to Pioneer, but I think is a very interesting insight. If you look within games, you know, in, in general, things are competitive. Sometimes there's cooperation and competition. There's one weird mode where people get very cooperative despite them generally being competitive, which is when they play against an AI. And there's actually many, many popular games, you know, World of Warcraft, quite famously, where weirdly humans are, for the most part, collaborating because the adversary is an AI. So if you're like playing World of Warcraft, you have millions of people around the world that are cooperating Groups of humans cooperating to play against this other entity, this artificial intelligence entity. So tribes join to fight another tribe, if that makes sense. What's really exciting about this one is the other tribe is fictional. It's a machine learning model. It's not a a real human. And so we've managed to find a way now to get humans to cooperate, which is generally hard to do. I don't exactly know how to apply this to Pioneer because I think if we could put in applicants into Pioneer that were AI applicants that were doing a really good job of like writing really original music or starting really good companies, then we would just use that AI. (laughs) But, but it's something for people to think about as, you know, as if you're listening to this and you have a piece of software and you're wondering how to gamify it, there's, there's this really interesting insight, which is the engendering cooperation amongst your users by having them play against an adversary that's not a real human. Which I, which I find utterly fascinating. What else is something you've learned or that has surprised you since starting Pioneer besides the fact 
that there are so many amazing people out there and, and pioneers. And I saw, you know, the, some of the write-ups you had from the first, first group and it's, it's really incredible. What's something you've learned about, about the process or about anything else worth sharing? Um, okay. So two, probably two interesting learnings. One is just, so my previous company was a search engine and I mean, uh, you know, we managed to build a product that was good, not great. We ended up getting acquired by Apple, not going public. And, you know, people would send us emails saying that they kind of liked it. I have never worked on something that has the level of emotional attachment that Pioneer has engendered in the world. And that is incredibly surprising to me. And, I mean, motivating in a very different way. I have never felt emotionally motivated. I had always felt ra- very rationally motivated. So, you know, let's build a search engine. You know, we can increase the rate of economic growth in the world by making people slightly more productive. I had this whole like rational mindset I built out about it and I could craft a similar one for pioneer, but a lot of the motivation is, boy, you just get these emails from people, letters from people where you've kind of changed their life in a very meaningful way. And what's really exciting to me about that is we're we're like four months old. (laughs) So if you manage to have that amount of progress in this little of a time, heaven knows what you could do if we just managed to get our act together and and build out a little bit more of what we want to do. So that's probably been one massive learning. And the second one is somewhat related, is an interesting product learning. We built Pioneer primarily initially as kind of a, a search engine for for these folks. You know, I mentioned I started a search company. I obviously have one gear. And so I was like, let's build a search engine for these undiscovered uh, lost Einsteins. The idea was you're going to win the competition. You become a pioneer. And that's kind of it. We'll try to get different people to play it every month. And we'll just get these winning pioneers. Turns out that's not how the users are using the product. And this is like an interesting product shift. The users are using the product as kind of a gym for productivity. It's not necessarily even about winning the Pioneer game. It's about going through the process of trying to win the Pioneer game. Where, again, we get emails from people thanking us for creating the thing even though they don't win because it held them accountable to their goals. A lot of the Pioneers who won are seemingly interested in reapplying. And, you know, you kind of think, well, gosh, wait, you already won. Why? And then it turns out the motivational aspect is what matters. That is the real gift we're trying to give people. So that's changed our thinking a little bit. You know, we're, we're, we changed our policy. So even if you won, you could just reapply and win over and over and over. And we're actually going to, over the course of the next couple of months, we're really going to try to dig in on this concept of games where winning is just like, it's just like being at a certain level in a game. And if you win over and over, you grow your level more and more. And we're, we're going to try to just, you know, have the broadest number of people playing month over month over month as opposed to growing the organization. So kind of retention becomes an interesting goal as opposed to just growth. Right. And that's a, that's a pretty big product shift. It's actually a, a, a fairly different product, but it's, it's kind of exciting. It's again, it's trying to use this kind of nuclear energy of games for productivity and motivation. And it's, I think, a better way of thinking about the problem. That is to say, I initially came at this problem of let's find unrepresented talent that's spread throughout the world by finding them. And it turns out the way you find them is you actually like build a thing for them to play where the act of playing makes them better. And then you just look at who's the best players. Yeah. It's interesting. I have this uh, friend, Ray Batro is working on a learning gym. Uh, that's, that's what he calls it, but he's looking at sort of Equinox for or other gyms, physical gyms for comparisons. Perhaps he actually should be looking at things like Pioneer or things like Twitch or, and so sort of segue to ask, Overrated or underrated, the importance of face-to-face? Ah, yes, that's a great question. And of course, a pertinent one, even within the, well, 
we could say that this test is being run today in so many different variants within um, the fitness world, right? So you have your old school gym, you have your soul cycle, you have your flywheel, and then you have a Peloton, um, you know, whereas Peloton is completely, there is no, there's quasi-physical presence, right? It's, it's very interesting. So it's, uh, Peloton is kind of like a bike that you get on, and there's a basically a TV network uh, of instructors that you watch. The slightly more in-person version of that is Flywheel, where you all get together, or SoulCycle, and that feels a little bit more like church, you know, where there's a person at a pulpit with some candles, and they're shouting at you. And so, yeah, so they're all running this test for us. And certainly prior to the rise of Peloton, I would have been actually fairly convinced that face-to-face communication is necessary, and I'm now increasingly less convinced of that. So here's my framework for this. I think when you get humans face-to-face in the real world, you are getting an unbelievable amount of energy around kind of tribal bonding, people forming eye contact, talking to each other, trading ideas, going through experiences, creating memories. That is very special and incredibly powerful. So you can imagine that is worth 100 points. You could slowly build up your way to 100 points by trying to recreate that in software where at the very extreme, people just trade letters and words, just say IRC channels. They slowly build up their way there. You know, the open source community has these channels where people have real bonds, real relationships, but it's it's a long hill and it's the curve is steep and it's very easy to disengage at any time. And it's very easy for words to be misinterpreted. We, you know, you can go online and read these funny emails. Linus Torvalds, the creator of Linux, will write at people where he's shouting and cursing. And my interpretation of that is there's no tribal connection there because he's never met those people. So you have these two extremes, right? Like text being traded and like, you know, IRL. And the question is, what is the laziest way to get to the IRL stuff without being totally IRL? One thing Pioneer does, which I think will help us a lot, is we fly out all the Pioneers and we're going to put them together over the course of a couple of days and we're going to do a bunch of things that engender bonding over those few days. And then they're going to all disperse and go back to where they came from. And the hope is, you know, from a just, I actually think you probably get the most of the benefits in like five hours of in real life presence gives you, let's say out of those 100 points, may give you like 80 of them. There are also intermediary steps we should discuss. Like for example, you know, video conferencing calls. I kind of think for a bunch of deep psychological reasons, they don't quite get there today. I think that will be one of the big, big innovations in AR, but I think it'll be like 20 years from now, which will dramatically reshape countries, immigration, borders, but that will be a big deal. And then the other intermediary step that's kind of half a step down to close the loop here you know, to me is things like leaderboards that are incredibly personalized. I think that is basically a substitute, somewhat of a substitute, a partial agonist, if you will, for the tribal bonding you get if you meet people in the real world. So for the gym scenario, if I had to build a gym that was a distributed gym, I would start thinking very smartly about what is going on in the physical gym that is causing you to be motivated to. So maybe there's the people that you see there repeatedly, and maybe you kind of have a weird relationship with them where you think you're competing, but you're not competing. You're like, that's that person again. Maybe you wave to them, maybe say hi to them. How could you, again, bring that into software? I suspect that brainstorm ends up looking very similar to Pioneer where you kind of have leaderboards and maybe even do a better job than we do where you try to put people in leaderboards or chat rooms together based on shared interests that they have, which is another thing that happens in the real world. Real world. But at a high level, my framework is real world is, you know, in an incredibly powerful way to get tribal bonding, which is ultimately what you want 
for motivation. And you can kind of try to get reduced versions of that through the internet, but it requires a lot of deep introspection and creativity. Earlier, we were talking about your great YC talk um, that you did recently on how to be a founder. And then we were talking about what could potentially be your next YC talk. And I think uh, I'm proposing to you that it be <laughs> what we what we can learn from religion. You, you talked oh. about your your past. We we talked about you know physical manifestations of it today, like SoulCycle, you know uh, CrossFit, and many others. And now we're talking about digital manifestations. One that comes to mind for me is Bitcoin community, which both takes some of the positive elements and the negative elements. But so I'm curious for you, as someone who grew up with it, and now as someone who's building you know a real community that has emotional resonance and trying to inspire people. What, what are the most salient things that you've taken away from your religious experience or, or religious more broadly to pioneer in, in your life? Oh, gosh. Um, a religious experience. Um, religion needs to be respected even if you don't believe in it because uh, it is here after so many years, especially the ones that survived. There's some, there's, there's an evolutionary pride in that, similar to, you know, the, the human beings themselves. There's a lot of variants of human beings that didn't survive. There's a lot of variants of religions that didn't survive. And so it's, I think it's important to unpack what's going on there. The benefits of religion is I think it provides a, an interesting framework to figure out how to enforce positive tribal bonding. Humans have this very deep-seated desire that's, I think, very important to figure out who's in their tribe, who's not in their tribe. And I actually think a lot of the fake news, you know, you know, America kind of feels disconnected to each other. It's actually a little bit of a – when you look at it, it's a little bit of a tribal breakdown, and it's very, you know, similar to the Girardian mimesis idea, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. We try to mimic what others are doing, and we're trying to figure out who we should mimic, who we shouldn't mimic. And religion provides a way, basically a lasso, if you will, around people that ordinarily wouldn't connect to connect. And so you see it certain parts of the world where there was a strong, you know, kind of religious hold. It creates terrible chaos. Like if you look at the Middle East, when the tribal barriers break, but very strong bondings when the tribal barriers remain. Like the, you know, the Jewish community and identity is very strong. Regardless of what you believe in, it's very strong, despite it never being proven, if you will. You know, same for Christianity, same for Islam. So my, my takeaway from it is, how can we, in order to fix this problem where, you know, when you have tribes that don't connect, you know, there's a lot of competition, occasionally flat out war. How can we create kind of new religions that provide very broad lassos around the world to kind of get people to cooperate? Because when you meet someone who's from, say, the same religion as you, you're like willing to, to use an earlier framework, you're willing to play an infinite game with them. You're willing to say, sure, like, I, I, I think you're good. I, I kind of have, I, you know, I won't, I won't judge what you say too harshly or I'll assume, you know, positive you know, positive thoughts before negative. When you meet someone who's distinct and different from you, you're a little bit more cautious. And so one of the things we're trying to do with pioneers, we are trying to effectively create, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say a religion, but we're trying to create something that is similarly powerful for engendering, engendering kind of cooperation uh, and positive communication amongst a global network of people that have very few things that bind them together other than the fact that they're pioneers or pioneer applicants. And it was thrilling to one of the, one of the interesting things you can do in Pioneer. The slight one of the slightly riskier features we built is we allowed applicants the ability after they rate another applicant to give them feedback, both positive or negative. And it's a feature that you build where if you spend any time on the internet, you think to yourself, "Good God, yeah. people are not nice to each other on the internet." Just look, watch a YouTube video. Just watch, yeah, look at YouTube comments. comments. You look at what was it? Form Spring. All of these anonymous communities were terrible. 
Yet at Pioneer, and people tweet this out week after week because we email them the feedback that they get, the, it's really good. Not just positive feedback, but the critical feedback is constructive critical feedback, something a manager would give to someone that they're working with. And I think the reason why is there's a community built. And I think in many ways that, you know, that, 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 that inspiration is similar to what's going on with a lot of religions where people feel like they're kind of in this thing together. Right. And they're working on it together and they're, they're part of the same group. And my hope is to continue to grow that because if we can, I think it'll, it'll make it much easier for us to really build this kind of futuristic. I kind of think of it, you know, one way of thinking about it as, as, as the Ivy League, but I kind of think about it as a, as a futuristic massive X-Mansion from X-Men. We have all these people with incredible superpowers and their work, they, they don't mind working together. They don't mind helping each other. So that's part of the inspiration that we take. You mentioned the Ivy League. I want to ask you a broader question about education. If you could wave a wand and change anything about how we do, or we start from scratch from, you know, K through 12 to university, what sort of are some underlying principles that you would say would, would guide your, your recommendations for what we do? Yeah. I mean, there's some simple things. Um, like I do not, I think it is criminal that we ask teenagers to wake up at six, six forty-five. I, I, it's like just miss, it's, it's enterprise software mismatch. It's the person buying the software is not the person using it. So like adults need to wake up early. Adults want to wake up early. Children do not. So I think school should start at 11 o'clock. That's one very, I, like that alone may change the world. Um, <laughs> the second thing that I think is, is, should work start late too? I don't know. I mean, if you look into circadian rhythms with people as they age, they do tend to bias towards waking up earlier. So that, that's not necessarily clear to me. And in certain industries where I think it's a combination of incredibly high margin, incredibly high demand to hire workforce, work starts whenever you want. So in software engineering, I mean, you come into work pretty much whenever you want, as long as you get the job done. Is, 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 some people say that you uh, should go to sleep when sun sun's down and wake up when sunrise. That would mean waking up at six or whenever sunrise. Is that incorrect? My view is you should experiment and spend three months of your life trying every single variation, find what works best for you, and then like commit and move on. I have shifted a lot, and I suspect I have shifted in part because my job has changed. So when I was just on the maker's schedule, when I was just coding all the time, I woke up very late. Now I woke up extremely early because I'm slightly more on the manager schedule. So I don't know. I would just find what works for you. I do think universally, though, there are studies that show that like children have the circadian rhythm that demands waking up significantly later, where it's like a 25-hour clock where every day goes slightly later effectively as opposed to a 24. So that's a big one. I think the other thing that's not exciting because people have said this you know, relentlessly is we are opt- we are trying to in our society, I think we're constantly trying to figure out who are the people that are going to be the most productive and who are the people that are going to be least productive. And so we are actually building leaderboards very similar to Pioneers. The SAT test is one of them. And so it's, again, you got to be really careful what you measure because everything follows from that. So the SAT test is what matters. So now we're going to get people to pass SAT tests really well. And that means we're going to develop curriculums that may knock the creativity out of them forever. One of the greatest things that happened to me at my school is I had a high school principal who was willing to turn a blind eye to me actually not showing up to a lot of classes as long as I did well on tests, which gave me the opportunity to explore programming and kind of explore my identity of who I am today. If I think if I had, you know, ruthlessly just been at school all the time, I may have been a very different person today. And I kind of wish more curriculums were like that. I understand why you don't do it because you have to have a lot of trust and faith in the student to actually come through and have good grades. Why do you have to have good grades? You have to have good grades because this is the way we measure how good you are going to be in society. And this is the way we measure how good we are as a school. And this, so this is the way the school gets revenue. And, you know, everything follows from that. 
So that would be another thing I would change. I would say this, kind of a third thing that's not very frequently said, that I think it could be a very interesting idea. It's actually an idea of my old co-founder, Robbie Walkers, who's still uh, working, ruthlessly working on Siri at Apple, is building a kind of Airbnb for homeschooling. I think one of the interesting things you get from the internet is there's a lot of different people trying different things, and that leads to greatness. That leads to like Avicii rising out of SoundCloud, you know, Jordan Peterson, regardless of what you think about his views, he basically rose out of YouTube. He's an emergent property of YouTube. You know, really great bloggers, really great thinkers. They can rise because people are doing very different things. There's less kind of a homogenous centralization. And I think homeschooling is an interesting one because it potentially affords that. Now, you also get, I think would get if you had a platform where anyone can kind of pick whatever school they wanted to go to and anyone could start their own school, you'd also get probably people that would start very bad homeschools. But my view is that, again, you can use the internet to equalize this out. I mean, fundamentally, when you get into an Uber car, the person kind of takes you to that destination because the bad Uber drivers got weeded out by the system. The bad Lyft drivers got weeded out by a system. Same thing with restaurants. Like, this stuff kind of works. So I think you could do that for schools and kind of let anyone start their own school, anyone be their own principal, anyone be their own teacher. And the key point here is I'm pretty sure you could actually charge the state for it. Uh, and I'm pretty sure you could get tuition from the state for every student that you have. I don't know why this doesn't exist, and it feels like it should. It feels like if I'm a parent... Sure, I should be able to try to get my kid into public school X, which is, uh, if, you know, if I'm living in the right district and zip code, amazing or awful. Or sure, I should try to be able to get my kid into private school and put my entire family into debt because of that. Or maybe I tried this crazy experiment where, gosh, it seems like Principal, you know, Bob over there, who's like started a school in his home, is doing great and he's highly rated by all the parents. That I think would, would be a pretty tectonic shift in the way children get educated. And that would be incredibly important. The last final thing I think is really important for, for education is, um, I hope this isn't too controversial, but, uh, but I just think maybe it is. I think we need to get the internet as early as possible to people for two reasons. One is it encourages and allows people to follow their passions and dreams. Now, the internet's also a scary place. It has porn and violence. You, you want to mediate it a little bit. I actually grew up, uh, weirdly, ahead of my time. I grew up with, um, we had an internet because we had, I had a religious family with an internet that, I mean, basically, I had a white list of websites. And it turns out that was enough. I just needed access to a bunch of programming websites and the stack overflow of my time. And so I think that that is tremendously important. And then the other reason why I think it's really important is um, if we don't do it, I mean, other countries will. And, and I do understand the challenge of being a parent today is you have to figure out how to balance your kid relentlessly spending their entire life on their iPad watching YouTube and playing games versus being outside in the outside world. And so there's this whole paradigm of it potentially being an addictive product. But I think the, the underrated thing to think about is it's not going away. You know, it's here to stay. And so you want, you also don't want to raise the children that like don't know how to use uh, the pen and paper of the, of the 21st century. Yeah. We, uh, we just invested in a company that's doing Airbnb for daycare. Airbnb for homeschool could be a fascinating idea. I think it could be fascinating. And, and yeah, it may dramatically reshape the, the flavor of education in the US and have this typical disruption pattern where, gosh, you know, we were so focused on like disrupting education by selling into schools and Blackboard and all that stuff. Turns out, no, turns out the way you fix that is like five people in a garage somewhere in Los Altos just like cobble this thing together and it changes the world. Right. There's this idea in education that's commonly known as income share agreements. Yeah. Um, and sort of, which is sort of under a broadly, broader idea of sort of equity investing in people, which gets many, many people scared when it's phrased a certain way because of history of slavery, many reasonable reasons for that, et cetera. But there's sort of the broader question of, can you align incentives so that more people 
care about each other. And if you think about, we sort of have equity in our families, uh, in, in a different kind of way where we just, we care about them. We're incentivized to, to do so. And could you do that in more broader, broader ways? And so I'm curious how you think about this idea because Pioneer could be such a natural, that could be such a natural evolution for Pioneer to create sort of a, a marketplace or something like where people can hey, say, Hey, I think that person's really talented and they want to do this boot camp. I want to, you know, put some money so that they can afford it and then maybe see some, a percentage of revenue, uh, assuming they reach a certain, you know, income level. What are, what are your thoughts on this concept? Yeah. I mean, ISA's income share agreements, I think are amazing. Um, in many ways, they engender what I was calling kind of infinite gamesmanship. That is to say, if, if we had between us, if we had just traded ISA stock, like you had, you know, stock in Daniel and I'd stock in you, suddenly things would change quite a bit. Where you yeah. know, you can kind of feel it in your head a little bit, being right. like, yeah, sure, let's share deals, like let's work together more. It's all part of the same pool, right? And what's really interesting is you get that psychological shift. I think even if the amounts aren't that large, it right. just feels like there's linkage here. Yeah. Which you're totally right. This exists in families. This exists in, again, religions that enforce this, like particularly the Mormon church. Like we're all helping that thing. So it engenders cooperation, which I think is really interesting. And in particular, what engenders cooperation is the, what I'm describing here is income share agreement swaps. That's the real frontier. Um, (laughs) But more broadly, I think ISAs applied correctly are strictly better than any other alternative uh, in terms of if you're thinking of how to get kind of cash flow now for someone's future potential. Obviously better than loans because just to be clear to the audience who might be hearing this for the first time, the way a lot of the traditional ISAs work is unlike a loan, you don't pay anything back until you hit a certain threshold. So say we're going to sign an income share agreement, say 1% of your earnings, don't pay us anything unless you're making over $100,000 a year, which is amazing. Um, It means, and and if if you really build it in the right way, you can really structure it such as you don't pay us anything unless you get really rich. So it really doesn't matter. The challenges with ISAs, I think, are twofold. One is the optics, and that will hopefully change over time. Companies like Lambda School are kind of popularizing it. So it just looks weird to people. And uh, that's that's not a good enough reason. Um, the second thing we must be careful of is I would not want – Pioneer would be a prime place to try ISAs and also kind of make it like a live type auction model thing. That feels exciting and actually may positively reflect on a lot of the themes I mentioned earlier, competition, leaderboards. I actually think that would be a very scary and bad idea. There's something important to me about not necessarily having the reactionary nature of, say, an equity getting traded every day, especially if it's an equity in a human. I don't think we want that. I don't think we want to increase the flywheel of a bad day. You can imagine, say, like a bad week, you'd lose some hires on your team. And one of the wonderful things that that startup equity has in it is that it's not liquid. And it's actually, I think, one of the worst properties of cryptocurrency is in, in the cryptocurrency world slash public company world, people find out about that. They start, you know, selling your stock. The price goes down. Now there's this terrible flywheel effect. And we would not want to bring that to people. So I actually think it's very important for anyone kind of exploring ISAs or more broadly equity. I think when, when the project is in its embryonic stage, I don't think you want to be able to value it on a daily basis. Yeah. Maybe not even monthly basis. And maybe there's no shorting. You can only long. Well, you got to be careful because I think that would be ideal to say hypothetically, but the free market has a way of of making anything happen. And as as you know, you know, there's companies that try to enforce who can sell their stock. That's ne- this never works. There's there's a broker, you know, in a high rise in Manhattan that's figuring it out. So yeah, so I think you just want to set it up so that things aren't valued that frequently. But uh, you know, I th- I think um, 
broadly speaking, it, it has a lot of potential and it may be something we experiment with. Yeah. You know, when we think about growth and you think about sort of what leads to sort of the big successful moments in, in your career or in people in pioneers your careers, is it something you hear about this sort of overnight success, but it took 10 years. But basically the question I'm asking is how much of growth is linear versus like exponential versus all at one, like, you know, just that one thing that then leads to the, to the, to the much higher level of growth. How do you sort of view, you know, growth in terms of, you know, retroactive career success and, and plotting the, the moments that led to it? So I'll, I'll give you a metaphor that will, I think only be useful for engineers and then I'll try to explain it. I think growth is similar to a piece of software that's running through code and it's running through code and it's line, 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 line. And then occasionally it gets stuck in like a loop in a tight loop. And then it moves very quickly through the loop over and over and over and over and over. And then it breaks the loop and then it goes and runs longer. And then it gets into another loop and, you know, gets really tight iteration in the loop and then breaks and kind of continues down the code base. That is to say, progress, growth, I think these are all byproducts of getting stuck in a positive feedback loop, which I'll explain in a minute, rapidly iterating in the positive feedback loop, making a lot of progress, reaching a point where that positive feedback loop doesn't work plateauing, and then hopefully repeating that process over and over again. So I don't think it happens overnight, but I think overnight you can get stuck in this moment where you finally found the like the right thing to do, and that thing is giving you reward for doing it. And that reward, it's not, it's, this isn't money reward. It could be a person telling you you're doing a great job, users starting to give you positive feedback. I don't know, the weather changing. but like, And then you start doing that thing over and over and over. And I think this is, just describes all shifts in people's personalities. If you see someone kind of that's become a curmudgeon, I suspect that this similar framework is behind it. Something happened, and that didn't change them. But that got them stuck down a, a feedback loop, a kind of rabbit hole that pushed them in a certain direction where they were just optimizing something and it turned out to be the bad thing. So, you know, if you look at someone... I, I find it very interesting to ask a question when you meet someone, say, 10 years later after you originally met them, and you're like, wow, they really changed. I find it really interesting to try to ask and interview them to figure out that exact moment. Because occasionally what happens is I've, I've noticed a lot of, oh, I got an email from someone I respected and they said I should like just go for it. And I did. Or I read Paul Graham's essay and like seemed like the right thing to do. So I did it. And then I did it. And then, boy, I launched my website and people told me the website was great. And then I started working more and more on the web. But at that point, they're already in the feedback loop. They're in the, that tight iteration loop, which is improving their growth and improving their productivity. So I think the really interesting question isn't how to get people to grow, but how to like lapse them into this feedback loop where they start like gro- like iterating really, really quickly in a positive manner. I think that's really what, what growth is. So certainly not overnight, but you can suddenly step into it overnight. And it's, in many ways, it's very environmental. There's these fun studies where people move to different zip codes and their weight always fluctuates in the same direction. I mean, if you want to lose weight, the simplest thing you can do, move to San Francisco, move to New York, don't do anything else. You will lose weight. It's all a byproduct <laughs> of a feedback loop. Everyone else around you is working yeah. out and eating healthy. Suddenly you're doing the same. You know, I, for me, what happened was that moment was hitting submit on a YC application. And then I flew out here and then everything kind of followed from that. So it's, it's just finding these uh, turnkey moments where you enter the feedback loop is the key to unlocking growth in people. Right. It's easier to change your environments than it is your, your insides. Yeah, I think willpower in general is it, it tremendously overrated. I think we have very little of it. And I think you need to spend it in a way where it's like, it's like fixed capex. Where imagine you have a very little cash and you have your little lemonade stand. Sure, if buying a lemonade pitcher 
Is a thing you can do once that yields dividends over the next 20 years? Buy the pitcher. Um, but if it's something you have to do every day, I'm not sure. And so willpower is your capex spend where like if you can do a thing once, like move to a new city or like, I don't know, befriend someone that's going to motivate you to do something every day. Great. Otherwise, it's going to be hard tomorrow. Yeah. How do you know when an idea is, you know, start small, but has enormous potential versus an idea that is just really small? I'll give you one example. I started this company called Rap FM. It's sort of like Skype for rap battles. Right. You know, freestyle rap is sort of a niche within a niche within a niche within a niche of, of rap. It's a pretty small audience. It was very fulfilling, but like there are some paths that are cul-de-sac or that are like dead ends. How do you know when a path is too small? Right. Um, that's a good question. I think the best way to find out whether you should stop playing the game that is your company is if no one else in particular, no other users are listening. That I think the problem people have is they manage to avoid one massive pitfall, which is they don't work on the grand thing. They do work on a small project. But new pitfall that they don't manage to avoid is they work on their kind of pet project, which is awesome, but they don't really tell anyone else about it. And then, and then you're kind of like a, a petri dish in a lab that doesn't communicate with the outside world. So you're going to develop a weird organism. You're going to end up like Japan, basically a weird island. And one of the reasons why Japan is so unique is they were isolated from the rest of the world for a very long time. So your product will be isolated from the rest of the world. And then you won't realize to stop working on it. And of course, it's psychologically really hard to do um, the thing that I'm asking you to do, which is to go and talk to your users because a little voice in the back of your mind actually is telling you, man, they may not like what you may get punched in the face a few times, but it's really important to get punched in the face. And it's important to change your mental frame of reference about this. As long as we continue to use kind of capitalism as, as our model around the world, you need to create something of value to other people. So I think, you know, I'd learn to stop working on a thing if I mercilessly and ruthlessly try to either grow revenue or usage and was unable to over, say, the course of six months, then I'd switch to something else. The mistake people make is I think they don't really talk to enough users because it's psychologically so hard. And there's famous stories, of course, of, you know, artists not wanting to show their paintings and it's just right. repeating itself here. It's interesting. Going back to Rapid Femme example, I had a small community of people who loved it. Right. So the classic YC advice and startup advice is, okay, now you can you know, find a way to grow that advice. And my, my thought was, you know, okay, freestyle is small now, but once people see how fun it is or how accessible it is, everyone's going to start freestyle rapping. Hey, guess what? Th that didn't happen. <laughs> and it just happened to be a small group that grew a little. And so I'm curious if there's a time, if there are spaces or ideas where, or times where you see someone working on, they have a small amount of people who love it, but you just say, Hey, I've been there before. I know that it's somewhat of a dead end. Or yeah. do you think there's usually there's some, you can spin it in some way to grow the market? Yeah, that's totally, uh, it's a, it's a very fair question. And I, I and, I agree with you that the common trope advice is, you know, find your hundred users that love you as opposed to the million that kind of don't care about you. I think Paul Buchheit originally coined that. Um, but the challenge is, you know, and, and of course the challenge is as a founder, you somewhat delude yourself. I mean, because you work on it so much. And so, you, of course, you, you do the comfortable thing, which is you surround yourself by the people that like it the most. And you don't really broaden it out again, because that would be painful and, and harmful to do. One thing... That is slightly, I guess, contrarian. Um, although I think at this point, by saying the word contrarian, you're not contrarian. You're sort of meta-contrarian. <laughs> um, but one thing, in, in our world, there's a very, and, and, and in many ways with what I do with Pioneer, there's a very kind of mythological uh, version of the founder. It's very much your kind of Nietzschean Ubermensch, um, which is the person who powers through it all and makes it happen. I do think that... 
that is only somewhat true. You do have to have relentless commitment to your project. And this is why, you know, I think Steve Jobs used to say insanely great. The key point was you have to be somewhat insane. It's actually not a compliment to make something insanely great. There's something wrong with you. But I do not think that a perfect founder can defeat a bad market. And I just think that, gosh, if you're going to start a startup, you are already going to the most aggressive version of the video game. You are chewing glass and staring into the abyss, to quote Elon Musk. And so you're going to suffer. Don't make it even harder for you and go after a dog market. Like, I would just try to go after a obviously good market instead of trying to conjure it from scratch. And this is, I've shifted my view over the years just because I've seen good friends of ours just try to make something happen and it doesn't. And then on the other side, I've seen people where I've kind of been like, gosh, they're not even working that hard and their company's doing so well. Uh, so I do think you have to pattern match a little bit. And, and again, especially if you're going to start a company, let alone work at one, I mean, don't, don't, you're already climbing Everest. Don't increase the grade even more. What is your philosophy of friendships or how do you sort of, what criteria do you, like what's important to you and how do you think about friends? I think friends are really important. As I traverse through the video game of life, I realized they're, they're more and more important because you want to have a set of people. So again, it goes back to this idea of infinite games where it doesn't really matter what happened today. It doesn't matter what happened this week. They're still there for you. Why are they still there for you? They're there for you because there's a sense that the bond that you have with them is stronger than whatever's going on right now. And that's a, that's a very, very important concept because if you don't have that, I think life can feel very overwhelming and you can feel very ungrounded. And so the trick here is, I think, especially when people come out to city hubs to try to network, if you follow the pieces of advice I, I just gave you, you build a lot of acquaintances and not friends. Um, and I think it's really important to build friends. And it's, it's not very comfortable initially if you're an introvert, but it gets very comfortable afterwards. I think even introverts, I suspect it's, it's a very, ancient human thing are, are can cultivate like the six to 10 friends that matter. And it could be that extroverts can cultivate hundred friends that matter, but you got to have the small group that matters and you have to invest in them. And is the simple advice for that group picking that group, just pick people you want to be more like, or that's interesting. Um, I think the simplest advice, the Occam's razor here is pick people you like being around. And there's a wonderful effect I've noticed there where I don't think I was like, you know, born a particularly, lovely, pleasant human. It's like not innate. It's a lot of work. But what happens is, again, feedback loops is you surround yourself with people that are pleasant to be around. And then subconsciously you're thinking, why are they nice to be around? What are they doing? And then you're like, gosh, I should do that too. And so that that kind of is what makes you an interesting person. And often when you see people that, you know, skipped a bunch of years in high school or were homeschooled, they lack that because they didn't go through that process. So I, I would just pick people that are fun to be around um, because ultimately you want to be fun to be around. That's how you get to the top of the leaderboard of humans. And so that's the thing I would optimize for. There's a different question, which is how do you get inspired by people or, or what's the right strategy for kind of human inspiration? Look, I think if you can be in a place where they're inspiring people, like a real Ivy League campus, go for it. If you cannot, I would apply to Pioneer because that is literally what we are trying to do in software. It is inspiration as a service. I-A-A-S. And more productivity as for the services, which is pass, which sounds better. And, and the final thing I found worked for me before I created Pioneer, uh, the thing, my, my, my um, pseudo Pioneer, the fake variant of that, that I, that I would do back in Israel is I would read a lot about people dead or alive. And it's kind of interesting. The brainwashing effect reading has is incredibly potent, right? And so you, you end up reading like about John Rockefeller uh, or JK Rowling or John Lennon. 
And I at least found myself thinking a little bit like, what would Rockefeller do in this moment? And so in many ways, it kind of provides that in a, in a, you know, low fidelity way. But if you want the HD version, Pioneer is the way to go, hopefully. And if not, you can email me and let me know why. Yeah. You tweeted out uh, maybe a couple months ago asking for the recommend best frameworks for decision making. What are some of the best frameworks for decision making you've come across? Yeah. I'm very curious about two things. One is how to make better decisions, obviously. And the other underrated, under-researched thing that literally I've not seen a single research paper on is how people make large life decisions. It seems like no one has studied the science. So in terms of better decision-making, like mental models, I think there's 10,000 of them. Steve Yeggy actually has a great post that I try to reread once in a while about mental models. It's just a list of all the mental models. That's great. Uh, you know, Occam's razor, Hanelin's razor, all that kind of stuff. So that's, that's a good one to reread, reread. I think the largest meta insight about decision making I've had is really realizing that uh, humans are flawed. You are f- me, Daniel's flawed and observing the software in my head as opposed to just acting on it. It's like playing a video game in third person as opposed to first. And this means a little bit that in practice, say you're sitting in a meeting and you need to make a decision means a little bit that the thought process that you're having is not first person. I do not understand what's going on, but third person, like, why don't I understand what's going on? Why am I not focused? What's going on with me? Like, why do I have this feeling about this person? You know, is that, is that right that I should have this feeling or do I just have this feeling because they're an outsider? So kind of trying, I, I mean, this is not exciting to people, but Hopefully, if you've heard about mindfulness 10,000 times, and this can be the straw that breaks the camel's back, you should give it a shot. And, oh, here's the contrarian twist if you want a little bit of juice for the podcast. It's Please. not – like sitting and meditating, that's all great. I think like that is um, really overrated at this point. I think the underrated thing to do is just be an adult and try to observe – you know, your own mind in, in the moment, not like when you wake up at 6 a.m. and trying to sit and observe, just like in the actual moment. Try to get feedback from people all the time, accept feedback all the time. And when people give you critical feedback, boy, it is really important that you make that a positive experience for them because they will not give you critical feedback if you make that experience shitty. So thank them for that. Act on it. Mention to them that you acted on it yep. so that you engender more critical feedback. And ultimately, again, you want the critical feedback because you like want data on right. how to be better. I want to echo your point about making life decisions and how that's understudied because what are some of the big life decisions? Who you spend time with certainly as a life partner or best friend, where you live and what you work on. And all we sort of have is platitudes. <laughs> people have no, yeah, that's right. People have no way how... I, I do not think they know how to like answer these questions of like even simpler ones. You meet someone, old friend. Hey, how's work going? I, I seriously do not think people have a cached answer to that. I think they're computing live how work is going. <laughs> and actually what they're computing, they're doing mental substitution. And I think what they're, they're thinking to themselves, well, how is today? And then they save in their head the value for today for how work is going. So if you, if you actually want to get someone to quit their job, find them on the day that's bad, ask them how work is going. And then suddenly they start telling themselves work isn't great, isn't right. it? But again, this is like a very flawed mental process. Uh, it's, I think, mostly a byproduct of, of the English language being so flexible and loose and, and not really transmitting what you want. And, and it's like we just don't know how this works. There could be a lot of weird things are coming into play in terms of how people make major, say, career decisions. It could very well be that all major career decisions are made on moments of vacation because you come back to work and what happens is not necessarily work is good or bad, but you're flooded with 
like work, which is not as fun as vacation. And that is the catalyzing moment for you to like go out and look for another job. It could be that it's literally the dinner that you had with friends and your friend casually mentioned their salary and that mind virus has been stuck in your head for three months and you finally mustered the courage to answer one of the emails from the recruiters because your friend casually mentioned their salary that was higher than yours. So again, super understudied, super, super important because if we could figure this out, we could help people make better decisions about their life. So, you know, I'm just bumbling around the universe now realizing increasingly I have no clue why I'm doing any of what I'm doing. Right. It's a bag of atoms. Um, so I think it'd be super important to study that. It's interesting we're talking about feedback loops for a second. Another question that people ask all the time is, how are you doing? How, how's everything going? And if, if for people who are going through something, I'm not sure what the advantage to saying, you know, I'm depressed or I'm, I'm really struggling because is that sort of a negative feedback loop that then is like, oh, yeah, I am really struggling. And that person that you know, that reinforces their mental model view and they maybe tell other people and that like it's sort of just a spiraling feedback loop you gotta i mean the solution to that here's a nifty one please uh, hopefully <laughs> you tell me that it's awful um the solution to that is you have to be vulnerable first and it's very similar to and sorry i have one gear i'll relate everything to games but if you're at a poker table and the table's quite cold um, what people will do is a live straddle where someone will just say look well i don't even have the cards yet i'm putting in 20 bucks, 200 bucks, whatever. Just throw the party down. And that changes the atmosphere of the table. Because suddenly people are like, okay, I guess 200 is the, the minimum now. So you need to do that in the conversation. And that means saying something vulnerable first, which I think throws people off and gets them in a different gear. So yeah, how's how are things going? Will engender your classic, you know, great answer from the other person. But Crushing if- it. <laughs> But if you either ask a, no- a novel question or you just start with, you know, hey, you know, m- my day was really hard today. I had to do a couple of one-on-ones and I- I'm worried one of my employees is going to quit. But I'm kind of curious, forget me, like, how was your day? I think you'll get a very different answer. It doesn't all actually have to be negative, by the way. It could be very positive. Had a wonderful, you know, as long as it's genuine. Yeah. We talked on this podcast how you were working on the defaults you mentioned another part because you're you're sort of in your mid-20s like yeah you know now is the time to solidify the defaults and you also mentioned that you are trying to be kinder yeah um, because more kindness and you mentioned how kinder is such an emotionally fulfilling mission and that's sort of a novel thing for you so i'm curious broadly with those two things not being exclusive but somewhat different how do you think about your own personal growth like what are those defaults that you're working on and, and what does cultivating kindness mean to you Thanks for asking. Yeah. Um, making progress on that goal. This is a good, this is a good, uh, DG check in here. I'm making progress on that goal. You know, I, I am figuring out, I have basically, I've figured out a bunch of things in regards to my diet that have really changed my life. And again, the specifics don't matter. It's just the like, I think people should experiment and react. And I've had them now locked in for, I mean, maybe over a year, 13, 14 months. Uh, and, and that's, that's been quite helpful. I think if you're going to be any type of leader, you have to develop empathy and kindness towards people in a very genuine way. You can't actually do it. Like you can't do it the same way you're going to, you know, gear yourself up to like lift a weight at the gym. It has to like, I'm going to be kind, you know, that doesn't work. (laughs) So in all honesty, the thing that's helped me the most is, um, working on pioneer and being surrounded by friends actually who, are kind. And then it's, it's wonderful to observe this, the software in your head is suddenly like that interaction. That was good. How do I do that? And that, that changes you, I think at a very deep level. So I think I'm making a good progress, kindness, good luck measuring that. So 
you know, I don't, I don't know, but you'll, you'll tell me, Yeah, you know, and to that end, are, are there areas in your life where you said, Hey, this gaming or software analogy just doesn't apply. It applies to a lot. <laughs> it applies to a lot. I, I will confess I could use feedback on when to stop using analogies in general. Here's the thing though, on the analogy front, on the meta analogy analogy. <laughs> That's what we're here for. Analogies are, people make fun of me all the time and it's fine. I use analogies a lot. Gaming, by the way, is just one of many. There's a lot of Harry Potter analogies. There's, there's a lot of science fiction analogies. There's a lot of running analogies. I think they're incredibly important and people should feel free to make fun of me. You know, if people laugh, that's great. But they're incredibly important because they allow me to transfer a fairly complicated piece of information fairly quickly. Like if this is actually really strong, if you talk to two software engineers and you could say, well, it's kind of like, you know, G-zipping something. You just managed to say a lot in a word. So I find them as kind of, uh, well, as useful compression. So don't make too much fun of me. No, I totally. You wrote in, on Twitter, it's much easier to code life when you view events as an emergent property of underlying systems. Can you unpack that idea? Yes. So the easy thing to do is when you look at people, it's very easy to be judgmental of them. It's something I struggle with. I'm incredibly judgmental of everyone, including myself, mostly. Number one police officer for Daniel is Daniel. That's bad for two reasons. One is you're often wrong. Whatever judgment you're making is wrong. You don't have the entire context. And two, it's definitely not nuanced enough. Because, again... You're going to sense a theme here in my patterns of thought, but people react to environments and kind of feedback loops and all actors believe they are rational, even terrible actors like Hitler. I think he made sense to his distorted view and the easy way out is to say that person's bad or evil and in many ways they are, but the smarter, more interesting thing to do is to figure out what is going on in that person's mindset. Like what is going on in Trump's world that causes him to tweet that? How does that make sense to him? And that's when you start viewing like people, whatever is happening in your life, news, tweets, interactions, really it's just things that are emerging from the system. And if you can do that, you can decode the system and you can predict them better. And this is really important because if you can predict people better, I think you can interact with them significantly better. So in that sense, I think the harder intellectual exercises, like next time uh, you get a pop-up out of an interaction, something like undesired and unwanted, rather than annoyance or casting it aside, thinking what, like what caused that person to do that or say that? To me, that's led me down, you know, these very interesting paths of, you know, is it that they feel insecure? Why do they feel insecure? What went on, you know, a week ago, a month ago that caused them this insecurity? And then maybe you're able much better to connect with people. So it's it's kind of, it's doing the cognitive research, both in your own head and, and trying to do it in theirs. It is an interesting question. It was sort of a broad question we always ask, which is how do you change human behavior? Let's just say we're trying to make people less tribal. And there are different approaches, different hammers you could take to it. One is you could make everything a game. Two, add a game mechanics. Two is you could add... With crypto communities trying to do, uh, add sort of economic incentives to encourage people to work together, have more alignment. You could create, you know, more infrastructure, physical infrastructure or digital infrastructure so that people are incentivized to behave in certain ways. You could, you know, edit people's brains in the future, perhaps, <laughs> you know, or you could get them when they're really young yep. uh, in kindergarten, teach them how to coordinate better. Which ways are you most sympathetic to as in terms of changing human behavior or most down on? I mean, I, I'm down on anything that fundamentally tries to edit it, say with CRISPR or whatever, because I actually think the defaults are there for a reason. We don't cooperate all the time. We sometimes compete. Uh, and that is, I think, very good. That's what leads to 
everything that's around us, these microphones, this table, uh, whatever you're listening to the podcast on, it was created out of competition because people wanted to make something better um, than what already existed in the world. And that's fine, in my opinion. And and not all people believe this, I understand, but I I do. You want people ideally to compete, again, in this very broad sense where they're willing to cooperate at times and they're willing to have the bigger picture in their head. Uh, certainly, I think getting people early on in life is is great. I mean, it seems like as you age, you basically trade novelty for pattern recognition and the brain is much more plastic and malleable when you have less data to pattern recognize on. So shaping someone's life early on in life, I think that could be a really big deal. And and certainly... Um, Can young people be pioneers, by the way? Yeah, pioneer is kind of broadly aimed at younger people. The applicant, you know, in our first tournament, we had applicants from over 100 countries, but also anywhere from 12 to, I think, 87 years old. Now, there is an age that's too young for something that is pioneer for a bunch of other reasons. I mean, I think pioneer gets you... Pioneer is designed to get you into a very particular feedback loop that I don't think you want at 12. So... Uh, but 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 I do think figuring out other ways to get people to think of themselves as together in a tribe as opposed to antagonistic to each other is important. Getting them early on in life is one crazy one, if you really want a crazy one. So the reason uh, earlier we mentioned the fact that humans are willing to cooperate when they're playing against an AI in games. So it turns out if there's another tribe, it could be a fictional tribe, we suddenly cooperate more. And... Certainly, this is one of the reasons why war leads to a lot of economic progress is it's like us against them. We, we, all of America must collaborate in order to persevere against, say, if the Cold War, uh, the Russians. Of course, it's terrible because on the other side, you have real humans. Uh, and so if the Cold War had actually come to pass, boy, that would have been bloody awful. But it's very interesting if the other entity doesn't really exist. So I've always wondered, like, what if there was a completely false myth about alien invasion happening. And it was a catalyzing moment for the entire planet to just work together, stop the Uh. trade war, collaborate as much as possible, you know, build companies that are half in China, half in America, you know, build rocketry with the Russians, all because we got to work on this together, lest the aliens come. Now, of course, the fascinating twist about all of this is there are no aliens and there's nothing coming, but there's just the myth of it. And I think if you could successfully pull that off and even if the myth was true let's just say for 10 years that would probably cause more economic growth than i think anything else possible wow my friend anthony soleil who's the manager of nas and future who should get bald pioneer in some way he tweeted out recently he said i think earth needs a common enemy yeah so same idea that's how you create tribal bonding is you actually say it's oh no no let's look at the bigger picture here <laughs> it's the aliens yeah <laughs> and it's funny because I mean, the question I asked you is the question I'm asking myself. And when I think about it, my life's work potentially could be trying to improve human coordination. And I'm trying to think what are the, what's the highest leverage way to do so. I think that's incredibly important, especially in this era today of a, the social network where the, the tribal bonds are local instead of global. And so there's many more of them and the extreme ones kind of connect to each other, if that makes sense. Like, I think the, the, the very weird thing that the social network did, and it's, I think it's broadly speaking, actually a wonderful product, but it did this weird thing where like, extremes can talk to each other because like the extreme KKK over here, you know, in one state now suddenly has a very easy path to the extreme KKK in another state. Cause it turns out like they both like the same content. So in many ways, the worst tribes are getting amplified or the most extreme salacious, whatever word you want to use tribes are getting amplified. And so, yeah, you have to figure out a way to combat the tribal bias you get with information and news. Creating another antagonistic massive tribe is, is definitely one thing to do. 
I'm very worried about, you know, other people talk about weird interventions like, I don't know, psilocybin or the one that I'm super worried about is pot. Oh, you know, pot gets people to chill out. It's not clear to me that, you know, that we're, we know enough to screw with that system. That's a, ve- that's a very scary system to screw with. I mean, there's the Doomden study from, I believe, New Zealand or Australia showing that pot reduces IQ in teenagers by 8%. And I think that correlates roughly to 15 to 20K of income annually. So that's a really big generational deal. So I'd be hesitant to like CRISPRize or do drugs because I, I, th- I think that's, we just don't understand the computer. So why edit the source code? Yep. Uh, last couple of questions. One is maybe full circle here, evaluating talent, you know, for, for pioneer. How do you sort of, think differently about perhaps about evaluating talent than someone like Keith or boy or Eli Gill or even mainstream <laughs> talent evaluation. Like how do you see the world of evaluating talent? Um, I actually think it's, it's somewhat similar. And i um, a lot of these people are good friends of mine and I've sat down with a lot of them, you know, Keith, Elad, Mike Moritz, Mark Andreessen. And I've tried very much to reverse engineer the, the software that's in their head into software that's in software. I think the largest way I think differently about the problem than them is um, I'm trying to make it scale to the internet. Um, and I'm not, I'm actually trying to not have humans be a local small set of humans be involved. Um, and we're not there yet. I mean, Pioneer still has experts that do kind of a final review on the algorithmic selection process, but we will get there by hook or by crook. We will get there. And I think that's really important because again, no one's brought really the power of like, no one's done a Google crawler for geniuses. And that's what we want to do. So to accomplish that, we need to think a little bit more C++, a little bit more Python, and a little bit less coffee with random people. Yeah. There also doesn't exist a glass door for people. So did you imagine in the future there will be like a, this person's at 91% from people that have worked with them, and this person's a level three friend, and this person's level... Like, to what extent, what, what things will, will not be captured or, or will be captured again? This is, I think, one of the reasons why it's actually really important for founders to have empathy because we could potentially concoct a future here that is very good, maybe even very lucrative, but actually quite bad. You know, you could, cause you can imagine again, if you have a bad week and suddenly you're like, you're going down from like level five to four to three to two to one, this compounding, it's negatively affecting your life. And so we actually have to make sure again, we use the, the energy of like applying labels and statuses and badges to things in a positive way. And again, we, we really, when we think about designing Pioneer, we really think about what is the most positive experience everyone can have and we try to give it to them. A byproduct of this is a feature that we added where the regional leaderboards now as opposed to a global one to really give everyone a sense that they're at least winning something. So you may be, you know, a position 900 and the global leaderboard, but maybe you're number one in Ghana. That's really exciting. Yeah, I think this future that you're describing will exist, whether it'll be dystopian or utopian really depends on whether its designers want to carry in a kind of utopian view and can really think about the second order effects of what they create. And that's something I think a lot about because I do think this could look very black mirror if we're not careful. And so, you know, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about how to, how to, yeah, build a future that we'd be, we'd be proud to live in. Yeah. And, and to that effect, could you imagine the future, your pioneer five years out, 10 years out, you know, the goal is to find the law science science. Could you imagine a path? And obviously you have to be very careful about how construction it, where it's, where it's like YC, except instead of supporting companies, you're supporting people before, before they even start them. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, it kind of is that today. So pioneer does require you to have a project. You have to apply with a project, but I suspect for the winners of the tournaments that we have, their projects are going to change. 
Uh, and you see this often with founders. You know, the first company is not the massive company. You know, Patrick had a company called Octomatic that he uh, sold before Stripe. Howie had a company, Howie Liu, founder of Airtable, had a prior company called Etax that, you know, was successful, but far less successful than Airtable is. And so these second acts are actually quite common. Eric Wu, founder of Opendoor, prior company, was called Movity, um, got acquired by Trulia, I believe. So... Uh, and and this this pattern is quite common in research too. You'll see people originally start out, you know, they'll they'll be studying the hot field of the day, which today may be cryptocurrency. It used to be, you know, say uh, quantum engineering, quantum mechanics, and then suddenly do great research in machine learning. You know, Inside Data Science is a great example of a company that's capitalizing on this. So for both research and as well as commercial kind of company starting. People's, you know, second, third acts is often where they get their swing at. We just want to get in touch with these folks early on in life. I suspect Pioneer will always require you to have a project. You will need to have a thing, mostly because I believe that is a good selection filter on people. If you do not have a a project, and boy, we've defined it so broadly, that if you cannot concoct a thing, and this could literally be anything from a book, a song, research, a company, a paper, a drink you want to sell, if you don't have that, I worry you're never going to have that. So I think we're always going to want to find people that will be relentlessly productive on something they create. In closing, I want to name a few people and then I want to ask you what's something you've, you've learned from. So Laura Devin. Laura is one of the uh, most productive people I've met. I mean, she just had, I think what's going on with Laura is she has a, tr- she's very high in trade conscientiousness. And I think she feels a tremendous responsibility to get a thing done if she tells you she'll get it done. And it's one of those things where it's not a learning in the sense that like now I have this knowledge, I'll do it. But it's a little bit more like I, I am more like that when I am with her just because, the, you know, environment shapes who you are. So conscientiousness is probably the thing I've learned the most from Laura. How about Patrick and John Collison, who are obviously two separate people, uh, but, but brothers and, and good friends of yours? I'll separate them out so that they don't feel like they're one person. Patrick is, I think, very... In the kind of Bob Keegan human development framework, he's very not even self-authored in the sense that he knows who he is. That, that was actually how I would describe the differences between them. So Patrick is very interested in adopting any view that is on the table as potentially as his own, thinking about it, trying to find the flaws on it, asking questions about it. And, and that's very interesting and quite liberating. Um, whereas John, what I find quite interesting is there's something kind of very Gryffindor about him. He has very specific set of values and virtues he holds on to that are grounded and stable. And so I think John is actually the person that you want in order to make sure that during turbulence, the thing stays steady and continues to go to the direction it needs to go in. And Patrick is the person that you want when you're like, gosh, the plane has been going steady for too long. Let's make it a little turbulent. <laughs> are, are you in Ravenclaw? Are you Ravenclaw? I don't know what house I'm in, but the sorting hat is a wonderful game mechanic. I'll tell you that because it's random because you don't exactly know why it selected you. And so it becomes so interesting to talk about it. Is there a sorting hat in Pioneer or might there be? Maybe there should be. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's definitely one of the things we're thinking about. Yeah. Could, should, could someone make a school that's actually called Hogwarts? Like, I wonder if they, could they use that IP? I mean, I mean, I don't know. JK Rowling, I follow her on Twitter. She seems like a pretty nice person. Yeah. So. That's a pretty amazing idea. Elad Gill. Yeah. Elad is someone I hold as a very close friend, honored to be his friend. He is, it's a lot of things I've learned from him. Probably the largest Eladism, the professional Eladism that I've picked up is, uh, he very much is focused on markets over founders. And don't get me wrong, he cares about the quality of the founder, but he very much believes that market wins, not founder wins. Now, I mentioned this earlier. I would say he is even further on the market trajectory than I am as a person. I am still holding on to a little bit of that belief that, that, you know, the mythical founder can break through. 
but he has certainly pushed me in that other direction, which, you know, I find interesting. On the personal front, um, it's nice to have, I'm from Israel originally, uh, and it's just nice to have one of my close friends be Israeli too. There's a lot of like cultural connection there. Mark Andreessen. Mark is the best, is the most generative person I think you'll ever meet, except maybe Tyler Cohen. Or, or Balaji. Or Balaji is another good one, where basically by generative, it's a very simple test. You give them one thing, and it's how many things do they produce. So you give Mark one named entity, he'll produce 10. You know, Balaji is the same, and Tyler's the same. He's also incredibly responsive, which, again, I take a lot of strength from. I think, gosh, I should, I should be more responsive. Mike Moritz. Mike has the most legendary uh, kind of founder selection software in his head. So that is the thing that I try to fi- figure out. The other interesting thing about Mike is he is incredibly – I wish there was a word, maybe there is, to describe someone who's a polymath but in also areas of art, which I think is interesting because I'm – I wonder if I should – it's inspiring to me to be more like that, to be more interested in like – you know, boats or art uh, or music than I am. Um, actually, I think music is not one I struggle with, but but definitely like physical art, I, I, I don't get as much as he does. But again, the, the legendary thing about him is he has just an innate ability that's been tested over the course of decades at just identifying talent. I mean, it's, it's Magnus Carlsen, basically. Uh, how about Saku? I saw her on the Pioneer Advisor list. I, yeah, Saku is... I know Saku's Twitter personality better than I know her real life personality. So all that being said, I think she is a very interesting person who is interested. So there's people that are interested in ideas. Patrick is a good example of this. And then she is a variant of this where she is interested in fringe ideas, really seeking the frontier. You know, Saku is the person where if everyone is prospecting for gold in California, she's thinking, good God, we got to go to like, what about the people that are going to Saudi Arabia for oil? You know? Uh, what about Nat Friedman? Nat, wow, you're hitting on all my favorites. This is really good. I don't know what, what you're using to select people, but it's great. Um, Nat is the most, one of the most natural born leaders I've met. He would never describe himself as much. As, and I think he, maybe why he's good is he's very hard on himself, but, um, he has this ability to, um, just say things where you're listening to it and it's just like, you're not even really understanding what he's saying, but it sounds so good. You want to follow him to the moon or to Mars. Sam Altman. Sam is weirdly out of all the people we listed, and we listed some ambitious people. Sam is probably the most ambitious and the most f- mentally flexible. Um, like he is willing to, you know, it, hop on a call with you to discuss a crazy idea at two o'clock in the morning. And there's very uh, few people that are that have that flexibility and ambition and talent. So I'd say ambition is the word that defines him. Keith boy. Keith. Keith is an interesting one. He's changed over the years in a very good way. I mean, I think Keith is probably one of the best operators on the planet. I think he's changed in, he got famous, I think, for being very mentally inflexible and really just having his way or the highway. But I think he's modified on that a little bit in a good way where he was a little too extreme before. Uh, And now maybe as a prospect of going from operating to investing, he's willing to kind of accept or tolerate at least test in his head alternative thoughts of view. But, um, I, you know, if t- two words to describe Keith would definitely be operational excellence. Yeah. Anything worth adding about Balaji or Tyler? Uh, t- I mean, gosh, here's the thing no, a few people know about Tyler. Tyler's an incredibly kind person. He famously has donated the proceeds of his latest book to basically a person he met in Ethiopia. And that's not something you, you see in the kind of traditional Tyler view where he has this economics blog that he posts about. He has also all the things you'd expect. He knows 
basically he knows all the things. So that's kind of interesting. Balaji is a more, he's a variant of that where I don't, I think Tyler has more breadth of knowledge. I think Balaji has depth of knowledge in certain areas that's unprecedented and seems to have, and he also goes crazy with analogies and he's much better at this than me. And he's much better at kind of creating a Twitter catchphrase than me. And I've wondered a lot about what the heck is going on. We, l- we literally have within this small circle of people you mentioned, we have this concept of abologyism. And that's when you come up with a perfect catchphrase, you know, for something. And I think it's because his mind seems to constantly be indexing information in kind of weird and different ways. So it's very easy for him to think of when you say, you know, something like, you know, gold, is, Bitcoin is, you know, he'll come up with like some catchphrase. That just, when you hear it in your head, sounds amazing. Yeah. Last living person, uh, Peter Thiel? Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel. I don't know Peter that well, honestly. Peter strikes me as very self-actualized. I mean, I think he's figured out who he is and he does not seem to, uh, he does not seem to want to deter from that, which allows him to explore ideas and people that I, I think others, including myself, are, are not fully capable of doing because we care about what others in the leaderboard think about us. I think that's a great way of putting it. Dead people, before we close, Benjamin Franklin and Shackleton. Wow. Ben Franklin um, has a little bit of a pioneer story. So uh, I, I, I kind of always endeared that. I, I believe, I mean, certainly not bred into economics. I forget the exact origins of it. To me, Ben Franklin and Warren Buffett are intertwined, are kind of very linked, um, just because I read The Intelligent Investor at the same time I went through this process of reading all of Warren Buffett's letters. Both of those people, that, I mean, the key about them is just the time horizon is incredible. Incredible time horizon. Uh, and, and it's a psychological software that I don't quite have yet in my head. You Did know? you mean Buffett's letters or Franklin's letters? Both. And Ben Franklin, as, as, at least as a person who, uh, who was a very much a systems thinker, um, which, which I would like to be, become one day when I grow up. Gandhi? Wow, what a great question. I haven't thought about Gandhi. I don't have an... I don't know enough about Gandhi to have an intelligent opinion about him. Shackleton. Sha- Ernest Shackleton. Yes. Ernest Shackleton, the penultimate leader. Okay, so here's the interesting thing on Ernest Shackleton. It's not really the story. I mean, the story is amazing. Shackleton's Incredible Voyage is an amazing book. But sometimes when I tell it to people, I tell about it to people, they come back to me and they say, well, you know, I read it. It was just okay. It's an adventure book. So I constantly wonder, and there's, but there's a cohort of people for whom Ernest Shackleton defined adventure and defined ambition. And I think it goes back to this weird effect, which is the books that we read as we were growing up somehow seem to have a much more potent effect than ones we read as we're adults. Like Ender's Game changed my life. I think if you were to read it now, you'd find it kind of an o- just okay sci-fi book. So to me, you know, I, Ernest Shackleton is amazing. But the question is, why don't all people think he's amazing? It's because I think, again, as there's something really wonderful about how, how novel everything is when you're kind of reading as a teenager, you know, because you don't have a bank of information. You have nothing to compare against. When you're reading the book, there's no, there's no author criticism in your head where you're like, this is bad character creation. You're just, wow, this is like the first character I'm reading about. So I guess maybe the insight from here, the learning from here is if you're a parent, boy, you've really got to be careful with the fiction and nonfiction your kids read because it can shape them and, again, how people make major life decisions. Maybe this turns out to be a massive thing. Maybe it turns out that the Harry Potter generation is actually fundamentally different from the Lord of the Rings generation just because of the books they read as teenagers. Yeah, I think that's a great way to close. Uh, where can people find out more about Pioneer? What should they stay tuned for? Yes, so um, we have the benefit of having a wonderful domain extension. So it's not Pioneer.com, it's Pioneer.app, A-P-P. Um, you go to the website, there's pretty much all the information there. You can also email me. My email is in my Twitter profile. My Twitter, my name is Daniel Gross, and that's my Twitter handle. 
Uh, and that's kind of it. I mean, if, if you're listening, um, the thing to realize uh, quick, I'll give your audience a quick sneak peek into the future of pioneers, just so you have a sense, give you guys an early look, something they never allowed me to do when I worked at Apple. If you have an idea that you have in the shower, just random, and you're wondering how to pursue it, it's really more a project than anything else. You should check out pioneer. It could basically be the way to potentially take it to the next level. And if you fail, no one knows apply with a different name for all I care. So that's one thing. The other thing is, if you would like to mentor Pioneers, we're actually working on the next iteration of the Pioneer game, which will include a new character. Just like, you know, there's multiple characters in a video game you can play. There are going to be multiple characters within Pioneer that you can play. And one of them is the role of a mentor or an advisor. And so if you'd like to help Pioneers, shoot us an email at team at pioneer.app. You know, let us know a little bit about yourself. And we're going to find a way to gamify the kind of game of advice and mentorship, much like we did for applicants. Awesome. Well, I look forward to uh, recommending more people, mentoring people and applying myself. Three roles. You totally got it. The Holy Trinity. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been a great episode. Thank you so much. Yeah. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 